Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rebello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we sit down with the former president of Colombia and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Juan Manuel Santos. He said, listen, you have a great country, but that country will never take off if you don't finish that war. So I decided I'm going to work for the peace in Colombia for the rest of my life. Plus, the Chilean director Pablo Larraín discusses his latest film, Spencer. I think Diana was a very mysterious person, and mystery is essential to cinema. So we thought we had a good chance to do a different angle of her life and find a moment where she's finding her identity and understanding that she has a life outside or could be outside of the royal family. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rebello. We begin the show with a highlight from the latest edition of the Big Interview, where this week the former president of Colombia and Nobel Peace Prize winner Juan Manuel Santos spoke to Monocle's Andrew Muller about his efforts to end more than 50 years of civil war in his country. Let's have a listen. It was a quite awkward uh, situation. Um, I was sound asleep. It was about three o'clock in the morning, uh, Bogota time, and... Uh, the person who I rescued when I was Minister of Defense, uh, Ingrid Betancourt, she heard the news, she was in Europe, and she called my son. And my son called me, but I was in the presidential palace and I had instructions not to wake me up. And so they did not wake me up. And my son insisted, insisted until finally the telephone call got through and he said, Dad, you just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I was so asleep, I said, oh, thank you. Uh, call me later and I hang up. <laughs> uh, and, but he then insisted, Dad, wake up. Uh, you just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And then I realized uh, that it was true. What do you do immediately after being told that? I mean, it's it's a question I'm not going to get that many chances to ask, and I suspect it's not a contingency I'm ever going to have to deal with personally, but what's the rest of your day like when that happens? Well, um, right after that call, um, I received a call from the Nobel Committee, uh, and uh, I re- answered the call, and I thanked them for such an honour. Uh, They did a a small interview, and uh, then uh, everybody started calling. Uh, I called my wife, and she was very excited. The rest of my family, they all came uh, to the presidential palace, and we uh, started to digest uh, what just happened. Uh, It was a very important uh, moment in the peace process and in the Colombian political situation. I say that this uh, Nobel Peace Prize came like a gift from God at a precise and very opportune moment because we had just lost a referendum on the peace process. And this was, uh, in a way, 
understood by the Colombian people as a tremendous backing from the international community to the peace process. Okay, well, we will come back to the peace process, but for the moment, let's wind back a few decades, I guess, to the beginning of your journey towards the Nobel Peace Prize, because there was politics in your family. I think you had a great uncle who was a president and a cousin who was a vice president, but it wasn't necessarily inevitable because you did other things. You were a naval officer, you were an economist, uh, you could have been a newspaper baron, perhaps even a journalist, because, of course, your, your family owned El Tiempo. So, what was it about those careers that didn't quite grab you? I had decided to be a journalist. And uh, after I lived in London for about 10 years, I came back to Colombia and became deputy publisher of the newspaper. It's the most important newspaper in Colombia. And I was destined to be the publisher. Uh, and that was my future. But suddenly uh, I was uh, asked to become a, a minister of foreign trade. We were opening the economy in Colombia, and this is the first minister of open trade in the history of Colombia. Uh, the then president, uh, Gaviria, said, listen, you, uh, this is a great opportunity for you, but also for the country. Uh, we're going to change the economic model, and you're going to be responsible for that. And I had my doubts because uh, I was sacrificing a, a very, very important post. Being publisher of the most important newspaper in Colombia is a very important uh, position to have. And I went uh, to somebody who I uh, really believe in, in his criteria, and he said something that was very important. He said, as a publisher of a newspaper, you're going to have tremendous influence all your life, and you're going to spend the rest of your life. But you're not going to have real power, the power to do things. That's only when you become a, a public servant and you can uh, sign executive orders and have things done. And you, he told me, you like to do things. You're destined to do things. So I suggest that you sacrifice your future in journalism and go into public uh, service and that advice uh, was important for me to take the decision to change my life from journalism to politics. So at what point then did you decide that one of the things you were going to do was one way or another address Colombia's civil war? Was that when you became defense minister in 2006 or before that? Before that. And it was a process, a process that started when I was in the Navy. I was, uh, I was given a, a small sailboat by an officer as soon as I arrived uh, as a, a recruit. And uh, he said, learn how to sail. And I had no idea. I almost drowned. And he, he uh, said, listen, in order to be a good sailor, you always have to know where you want to go. You have to have a a port of destination. And that is applicable not only for the Navy, but for life in general. Uh, that lesson, um, I, uh, I really appreciated, but it was in the back of my mind. And uh, when I became Minister of uh, Trade, I went 
to sell Colombia to the international investors. And I was in New York in a conference uh, trying to uh, promote investment in Colombia. And in the middle of the conference, there was a, a news of a big bomb in uh, Bogota, huge bomb in a commercial center. Of course, the conference failed. And one of the CEOs told me, uh, listen, you have a great country, great potential, but as long as you have that war, nobody's going to invest there. And uh, I uh, took notice of that. And a few months later, I had to go to South Africa and give Nelson Mandela, uh, the chair of something called the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. I was the chair and he had been elected chair, so I had to go and give him uh, the chair. And uh, we had a very long conversation, a very interesting conversation because I, I was asking uh, what, what was happening in South Africa because I had just seen in, in television, in real life, uh, the victims and the perpetrators uh, embracing or shouting at each other. And, and I asked, what is this? And he, he started to explain the peace process. And at the end, he said, listen, you have a great country, but that country will never take off if you don't finish that war. And so I, I sort of uh, um, discovered uh, my port of destination. And, so, and I decided I'm going to work for the peace in Colombia for the rest of my life. And so I did. The former president of Colombia and Nobel Peace Prize winner Juan Manuel Santos in conversation with Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller there. Next up, from this week's Monocle on Culture, we hear from the Chilean director Pablo Larraín. His latest film, Spencer, is a look at the life of Diana Spencer, the former Princess of Wales. But if you're expecting a traditional biopic, this is not it. Following in the footsteps of Larraín's 2016 film Jackie, Spencer looks at one particularly haunting week at the Queen's Sandringham estate, starring Kristen Stewart as Diana. Here, Pablo speaks with Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The lenses are more like microscopes, actually. And I'm the insect in the dish. You see, they're pulling my wings and my legs off. One by one. Making notes on how I react. Because she really does make a fuss, this one, doesn't she? There's a lot uh, about Diana. And we thought we had the chance to do a, a different angle. And that angle is is basically her internal perception. Uh, this movie intends to exist inside of her perspective, her POV, right, uh, personal vision. So it's something related to to the visions and the versions that we can all have around Diana. The more we know, the less we really know. It's a paradox because. I think Diana was a very mysterious person, and mystery is essential to cinema. So we thought we had a good chance to do a different angle of of her life and find a moment where she's, you know, finding her identity and understanding that she has a a life that it's maybe outside or could be outside of, of the royal family. And understanding that she struggled to find her identity 
and she ultimately found it uh, in herself and in her children. And what about the choice of Kristen Stewart uh, in the role? I mean, it's quite interesting, you know, she's American, and, and perhaps that's why the film is so fascinating. I mean, you're, you're Chilean, she's American, and you're dealing with kind of a British icon as well. Uh, but perhaps it gives kind of an outsider perspective. But, but there are similarities between Kristen and Diana, that, that mystery uh, thing. You know, I think she has this kind of allure about her as well, right? Yeah, the, I agree. I think uh, Diana was a very mysterious person, and, and, and I think Kristen can carry that mystery on, on screen really, really well. And, and it's true, I'm, I'm from South America, from Chile, so there's nothing that could be further away from my reality and my culture and education than, than the royal family and the structure that it represents. But, but I think that specifically in the case of Diana, she was you know, ultimately a very universal character, and I think we can all relate to her. There are a number of reasons where you could, or situations and, and context where you could feel that she's somewhat that, that is close to you and your reality. And that is something fascinating because because then we can all relate to her, depending on who we are and our, our biographies. Everyone has a different perception on on who Diana was, and and that is great to cinema because when you get to see a movie like this, you would eventually complete what you're seeing with your own biography, and that is great to see, to experience, to feel. And I think Kristen does a beautiful work there because. It's very intimate, and and she can create the illusion of, of being Diana with her voice, with the physicality, and a number of things. But, but most importantly, with with her emotional approach, and and when you start to feel what she's feeling, then you are with the character, and and that is what I think Kristen does so successfully. And I think it's fascinating how much you can tell a story in for just a small period, for example, Spencer, it's basically about that, that Christmas weekend at Sandringham uh, Castle. And I think you did something similar with Jack as well. You choose a select moment to basic, and, and it's funny because with that moment you can kind of understand so many things, right? Right, what, what, it, what it is is that often when any of us is going through a crisis or a difficult times, the way we behave can define us better than when things are going well, you know, and and that is what we do. I, th I think, and in both movies, in Jackie and, and now in Spencer, we we worked around uh, a very crucial time of their lives, and by doing so, you are able to witness and to experience with the main character you know, some of the decisions that they make and some of the things that they experience that we can relate and ultimately will help us to define who that person was. And finally, Pablo, I'm going to ask, because we are here in London, how did you feel about the initial reaction to Spencer? Because the British, they still have some kind of bond with the royal family, like then or not, you know, the newspapers, it's always a controversy, it's always on the front page, but so far the reviews have been excellent. I think we briefly talked about it, that of course the things that I don't really know, understand very well about the culture here, uh, the other things that I think I do, but what I care is, is about Diana and I think that she was obviously very British and, and very English, and but she was very also very universal and, and there are things that we cannot relate uh, to her. And also, you know, I'm a 
filmmaker and I'm attracted to interesting stories wherever they happened and so as long as I can you know dig in and and be able to deliver a movie that that I consider and with the people that makes them that that they was worth doing it and and maybe was seeing them then there's a place that that makes sense you know and you know I understand that in here uh, Diane has a very special role and and is interpreted by different organizations perceptions institutions media however I think that you know I grew up seeing my mother really into Diana and not only about her life but my mother would likely be wearing similar fashion. I would cut her hair like her. And, and, and then I discovered that my mom was just one of, of hundreds of millions around the world that were so interested in her. And I was very curious to know why. You know, and maybe this movie is an intent to go there. And in the process of making the movie, I realized that we were really making a movie about motherhood, which is what I think Spencer ultimately is. Do you want to be king, soldier? I have no choice. Do you want to be the queen soldier? I'll be your mum. That's my job. The Chilean director Pablo Larain speaking to Monaco's producer and senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco for this week's edition of Monaco on Culture. Staying in the cultural realm now as we look back to last Sunday's installment of Meet the Writers. Elif Shafak is a best-selling author in several countries around the world, and her work has been translated into a staggering 55 languages. A political scientist by training, her books are revered for their ability to weave intricate threads into enthralling stories. In this highlight, Elif talks to the show's host, Georgina Godwin, about her new novel, The Island of Missing Trees, a unique story of memory, immigration and generational trauma. I've been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very long time. The truth is I've been thinking about the story, reading, researching, listening to people. And I wanted to write a novel based in Cyprus, but I couldn't dare for a very long time because there's no doubt in my mind this is a beautiful island with beautiful people on both sides, north and south. But at the same time, it's the place where the wounds are not healed yet where the past is not a bygone affair. You know, it's very much alive. And it's, I think it's very much shaping the present moment. And there are clashing memories. So depending on whom you talk to, they will tell you a different interpretation of the past. And as we speak, there's a partition line that divides Cyprus, the longest, you know, serving UN troops still there, literally separating Christians from Muslims, Greek Cypriots from Turkish Cypriots. So how do you even approach such a complicated place? How do you tell the story of a place that has experienced ethnic violence and hatred without yourself falling into the trap of tribalism Mm. or nationalism? And I couldn't find that gate into the story until I found the fig tree. Only then it gave me a bit more sense of freedom or maybe a bit more courage. So I feel very thankful to the fig tree for allowing me, you know, in a way to, to write the story, you know. That's how it started. If you're feeling slightly mystified, the narrator is a fig tree. <laughs> uh, and we'll get onto that in, in, in just a moment. I, I wonder why that history of Cyprus isn't better known. Yeah, which is a mystery, especially here in the UK, because Cyprus is one of the top destinations for British tourists. So many people travel there, rightly so, because it's so beautiful, the culture, food, the weather. 
And at the same time, the history of Cyprus is part of British history. But people don't learn much about it at school. And I've heard so many people telling me, you know, I, I knew nothing about the complexity of this story, even though it's very visible. I mean, if you go to Nicosia, it's so visible, that partition line, you can observe it yourself. So, but we don't know, or we, we tend to forget very, very quickly. And I think it's memory is important, you know, not in order to get stuck in the past, but we have to learn from the past. And we need to be able to talk about the past more calmly in a much more nuanced way. Mm. I mean, the book is about intergenerational yeah. memory. About, and it's also about inherited trauma, family silences. Yeah. And we see that following many tragic events. Why don't we talk about these traumas? I think you're so right. You know, we don't talk about traumas, but it also depends on the generation My observation, my experience is the first generation, especially in families that have experienced displacement, you know, immigrant families or families that come from complex backgrounds. The first generation, they are the oldest and these are the people who have experienced the biggest hardships and traumas. But they don't have an outlet. They don't even have a language, you know, to how do you talk about these things. So they can't. The second generation is not interested in the past, usually, because they're busy building a new life. You know, they have to be forward-looking. You just need to find your feet and you can't look back. Mm. It is the third or the fourth generations, the youngest in these families, who are asking the strongest questions about identity, their grandmother's, grandparents' stories, you know, their ancestors' heritage. And so I have met young people with old memories. And that's really fascinating. That's mm. the whole study, isn't it, of, of epigenetics and, and that yeah. actually coming through physically. Yeah, which I think is a subject we don't talk about enough because, I mean, when you observe nature, there are amazing studies that show trees that have descended from trees that have experienced traumas respond differently to new traumas, such as wildfires or drought. But when it comes to human beings, we don't talk enough, in my opinion, about the possibility of inherited pain. You know, we talk about how we inherited our, the color of our hair from our grandparents or the shape of our nose or chin. But what about sorrows? Do we also inherit sorrows? I think we tend to talk about family stories a lot, but we don't tend to talk enough about family silences. Mm. I mean, you, you have a line in there, memory is a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, memory is a responsibility. I mean, I, I come from a country that, of course, Turkey has a very long and rich history, but that doesn't mean we have a strong memory. And I think it's quite the opposite. We're a society of collective amnesia. Forgetting is the easiest thing. You just walk by a dilapidated building. There's no placard, nothing that says what happened to the family who used to live there. You know, the name of the street, why is it called that way? Nothing, no knowledge, urban amnesia, collective amnesia. But what happens is when you have such a big void and when your relationship with the past is full of ruptures, that void is sooner or later filled in by extremist ideologies such as ultranationalism, Islamism, or this idea that, you know, we were always a glorious empire, this golden era, imperial nostalgia fills that vacuum. And that's not healthy. That's not how we learn. We can't repair if we can't remember. I mean, you had a really international childhood, I, I know, but you are very much Turkish, but not living there because you, have, you yourself have been attacked in that way. It's a difficult environment for writers, poets, academics, of course, for journalists, but also for cartoonists. Imagine, humor has become such a dangerous thing because in authoritarian regimes, that's one of the first things 
you lose. You know, you can't laugh at people who are holding power. But I think it's particularly difficult for novelists. I mean, I have a lot of respect for journalists, academics, all of them. But for a novel is a huge canvas in which there are ideas. You need freedom. You need freedom of speech. Many people, of course, understand that in Turkey it is difficult to write about issues that are political. But sometimes people don't understand that it can be equally challenging to write about sexuality, gender violence, child rights. Anything and everything can offend the authorities. I had an experience in 2006 with one of my earlier novels, The Bastard of Istanbul. And this is a book that tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family. And it does talk about the Armenian genocide. And when the novel came out, I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. We have an article in the Constitution that protects Turkishness against insults, but nobody knows what that means. Uh, And it has been used against historians especially, and journalists and scholars, but never before against the work of fiction, which was a bit surreal because the words of Armenian fictional characters were plucked out, taken out of the text, and used as evidence in the courtroom. That went on for about a year, as a result of which my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters. <laughs> and in the end, we were all acquitted, you know, but yeah, it's surreal. Elif Shafak in conversation with Georgina Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. Still to come here on The Curator, we stop off in Glasgow for COP26, head to Iceland to sample Reykjavik's Sky Lagoon, and we crack the spine of the Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs to learn how choosing the right staff uniform is key. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rabello. Next up, we turn to a story that has dominated much of the news cycle this week. It's, of course, COP26. Buildings and their associated infrastructure account for about 40% of global carbon emissions. So, getting world leaders at the UN's COP26 summit in Glasgow to develop large-scale plans for remaking our cities is key. As more and more people move to cities, it's important that urban carbon emissions are taken seriously and that making our infrastructure more sustainable and resilient becomes an urgent part of the conversation. To find out more, earlier this week, I caught up with Simon McWherther, the Director of Communications, Policy and Places of the UK's Green Building Council. We are an industry-led network of the really progressive thinkers and doers in the built environment space. So we are a member-led organization. We've got 600 members at the moment. And our core mission really is to radically improve the sustainability of the built environment. So we work with people right across the value chain. So that's from investors and finance houses in the real estate environment and wider construction through designers, developers, contractors, and all the consultants that go around that. And as I say, what we're trying to do is work with industry and the government to look for the really progressive set of solutions, standards, regulation, policy shifts that we're going to need to be able to get um, a really fast acceleration of sustainability in the built environment as we move towards net zero carbon for 2050. 
Uh, we are meeting today here at COP26 in Glasgow, um, and I'm curious to hear uh, what um, you are on the lookout for. Uh, what sort of conversations are you hoping that they will happen? What are uh, the UK Green Buildings Council's priorities here at the summit this week and next? At its core, the built environment and all the infrastructure that links that together is responsible for about 40% of the carbon emissions in the UK. So when we're looking at the large-scale plans to address that and deliver solutions, unless we're tackling the areas in which we work and live and play, we're not going to be able to get close and certainly not get close to the sort of scale of change we need to deliver the 1.5 degree limits under Paris. So we've, we've actually brought a really big team of people up here to help do a whole range of things at COP. And I guess, you know, the sort of conversations we're trying to stimulate at COP and wanting to hear are about how the built environment and the solutions to drive net zero carbon um, and more resilience in the built environment are actually one of the keys that will help unlock that acceleration that we need of driving net zero carbon at scale. So, you know, that's the sort of thing we're trying to foster and stimulate, and we're doing quite a lot of different things up here at, at COP to do so. So I guess like a lot of organisations, you know, earlier on this year, we had to make that split judgment about, you know, what's going to happen at COP? Is it going to be there in person? Is it going to be a virtual event due to the cold COVID scenario that was going on at the time? So we've actually ended up doing both things. So we spent a lot of time putting together a virtual pavilion to mirror the physical pavilions here at COP. And in that virtual pavilion, which is called Build Better Now, uh, we've convened sort of global best-in-class um, sustainable building projects from all around the world, showing a real can-do attitude of the art of the possible about actually what can we do, whether that's in rural Africa or whether that's in a tenement building here in, in central Glasgow. What are the built environment solutions to let us scale um, the way we address the climate and ecological crises that we're facing? So we've spent a lot of time pulling together those projects for the virtual pavilion at Build, Build Better Now. And in addition, we've curated, uh, along with over 100 partners from across industry, um, a sort of thought leadership seminar program um, every day at COP, obviously tied to the themes at COP, uh, whether that's transport or finance or youth. Again, looking at how we can show that solutions-based thinking that the UK's built environment sector is excellent at um, and how they can really lead the charge for the economy-wide drive that we need um, over time. Talk about urban resilience and the impact of climate change in our cities. But here in question is also building better in a way that you know those effects won't be noticed so it's also about how we can build cities not only to be more prepared for when catastrophe hits but in a way that might avoid us getting there again that's absolutely the case and you know there's a an overemphasis a lot of the time on operational carbon emissions you know what are the sort of um climate mitigation um efforts we need to do but the work we do at uk gbc runs right across all the sort of key environmental issues that are being addressed while we're at COP, from climate mitigation to adaptation um, measures that you're talking about, how we bring nature-based solutions into play across the built environment and make sure that we're sort of protecting and enhancing biodiversity with everything we do and actually ensuring that we're, that we're really considering how people live and, and sort of work in those buildings as well you know sort of what what's the impact on their health and well-being how can we make sure this has a positive impact on them and ensuring that we're always doing that through a 
the sort of a lens of social value really you know making sure that everything we're doing is having that positive impact on people so coming up with things that actually these sustainable buildings and the communities that, that we are regenerating through these processes are actually much better places to live and places that people aspire to be. And Simon just before we go tell me a bit about the future plans for UK Green Buildings Council. Yeah, we, we've sort of got some short-term activities here which are all about stimulating much longer-term action. So next week, we're launching the Whole Life Carbon Roadmap for the UK's built environment. And what that does in a very, very granular fashion is set out all the actions we need to get the entire UK's built environment to net zero carbon by 2050. So that looks at what do we need to do with existing homes? What do we need to do with new commercial buildings? What do we need to do with the infrastructure that links all this together? And that sort of breaks down into two main things. It says, what are all the policy changes that government and local governments will need to do to enable and deliver that change in the built environment? And in addition, what does the action plan look like? What does industry actually need to do to drive this forward at pace? And now that we've got that detailed plan set out, what it means is that we can hold government policymakers and industry actions to account because we can now say, actually, look, we've shown we need to go further faster than that will deliver and actually reflecting into the fact that we're in Scotland you know the Scottish government have put forward even more ambitious plans around net zero you know with a 2045 target and off the back of COP we're actually launching UK GBC Scotland to try to build on what we've done at a wider UK level over the last 14 years to say how can we act as a catalyst and bring together Scottish government with local authority leadership and the great pockets of industry practice there and how can we accelerate and help them get to that 2045 target and get net zero carbon here early. Simon McWherther of the UK's Green Building Council speaking to me earlier this week in Glasgow at COP26. From Glasgow, we head next to Europe's most northwesterly nation, Iceland, for a report from this month's Confect Corner. Long famed for its natural spring and communal bathing culture, this year saw another player hit the scenes as Reykjavik's Sky Lagoon opened its doors. Sky Lagoon is built into the promontory of Kop Avor, a town just a 15-minute drive from downtown Reykjavik. The infinity edge of the main pool looks out across the bay to volcanoes, glaciers and a presidential residence. And its seven-step spa ritual sets it apart from nearby geothermal offerings. To test its waters, Confect Corner's Paige Reynolds took a trip to the Icelandic capital. Here's what she found. The volcano that is erupting in Reykjanes, it has been going like very quiet for the last few weeks, but uh, sometimes it erupts. So when it's the most powerful, it's been spewing volcanic lava, like 300 meters in the air. And then uh, on this side, when it's visible, we have the only glacier that's visible from Reykjavik area called Snæfellsnes Glacier. And then in the middle of here, the gorgeous white house with the red roof, that is the president's uh, residence. It's the favorite neighbors, so we wave them every morning. <laughs> Skylagoon's manager, Dani Petrusdottir, is describing the awesome views from the infinity edge of the outdoor pool that unfurl across the bay beyond the sea's ripping tides. But the Sky Lagoon is more than just a dip in these impressive waters. Standing in front of the main lagoon and the roaring waterfalls that cascade from its rocky backdrop, 
Danny explains the seven-step ritual, which starts with a swim in the lagoon, before heading to a cold plunge pool and a hobbit-like turf house, which contains a large wooden sauna, mist room and steam room. The second step of the ritual is then to plunge into a cold pool. It's about 10 degrees Celsius. You go in, if you're brave enough, you sit down, count to 10, 20, or even stay in for a minute. Then step three is in the turf house, and you go in and you go into this uh, dry sauna with the most amazing view. It's about 85 degrees Celsius, so again, the body warms up. You stay there for 10 to 15 minutes. The fourth step is then a cold drain. So the cold drain is to awaken you, refreshes you after the hot sauna. It is kind of the most fun step of the project. There people are laughing and having fun and maybe laying down on the, on the floor. It's like being a kid again, running through the rain. And after that, you go into the middle of the turf house where you get a salt scrub. This is a salt scrub we spent uh, just about two years refining and you do the salt scrub, uh, full body scrub, and with the salt and the oils on, the scrub on, you go into a steam room. As we follow the edge of the lagoon around to the far left, we find the cold plunge pool and adjacent turf house, where Danny explains the ritual's restorative effects. So this is the cold plunge? Oh, this plunge. is the cold pool, yeah. okay. So you can see, it's... My record is about um, 20 seconds or so. <laughs> oh God, that is quite cold. But is, is the kind of cold to hot, is that quite an important part of the, yes. the process? Yes, absolutely. It is, uh, it, you know, it's so good for many things. Like if you've been doing any types of activities, it's really good for muscles and also kind of this, uh, the, it's both the physical part of it, but also, like, more importantly, it's the mental part. So, you know, the release of happy hormones after doing a call, it's, it's so hard, but afterwards you feel so amazing. Wow, the view when you look back, I hadn't looked back yet. Yeah. And it does just look like it's meant to be here. And, and kind of, this is just kind of the backdrop, but being in nature is just so important for us just to kind of put the mindset at ease. It would have been so easy just to kind of build a building and have a the lagoon over here. So the experience and sensorial design, we went all the way in terms of that. We just kind of wanted to have every single detail that contributes to good feelings and, uh, and the wellness aspect. And that's why we kind of did this backdrop of the lagoon. It also kind of embraces the lagoon. Probably the best feedback we got was uh, a local who said, wow, it's actually like they built the Narnia closet here in, in Kopovavur. Uh, because you go through a building that it doesn't, it doesn't look much, but then you come out here, it's, uh, it's a whole different world. For Icelanders, the geothermal bathing experience isn't some kind of biannual affair, save for those moments when you're desperate to unwind and have some alone time. Quite the opposite. For this nation, bathing is an innately social affair. You can read in the sagas about how the settlers and Vikings used the hot water just to survive the winter and for recreational purposes, and it was so important. But in modern days, it is also the social part that's so important. So people go, usually they don't take their phones with them. So it's, it's one of the occasions when you have no digital interference or noise and you can just sit, and you're usually with your loved one, 
and have a great discussion on things. So that's why we kind of designed all the seating area that is a little bit rounded so you can come together and have a great discussion mm -hmm. on things. And, uh, and that, that's one of the key things about the Icelandic bathing culture. It's, it is the social aspect. This kind of strong bathing culture means that while Sky Lagoon is sure to be near the top of tourist picks, in reality, it's the relationship with the locals that remains key for Danny. Actually, I went in last week. I met these three elderly ladies who were here seventh or seventh time. So they used to go to lunches together. Now they go come here and they do the wellness ritual and they absolutely love it. So it's kind of that step further that we took, that we think, and, and uh, we've heard that that's definitely what people value a lot. So for um, locals that want to come here after we just launched this... Uh, six pass options and uh, the ladies were thrilled to hear, hear about that and and that's what we say like we're seeing like for the locals it's like the date nights it's the friends coming together rather than going to lunch we come here and uh, that's what we're hearing is becoming a, the place to meet and have a great time feel good and just enjoy yourself just listen to the silence you're in the middle of the city, and, and this is what I love the most about this place. Even though when we were building this, when you kind of stopped and listened to the silence. Um, so this is the bar area. The bar is actually underneath there. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's kind of a cave bar. Um, and then we have seats all here, and it's just, you know, perfect place to toast for a wonderful trip or a visit. You know, first of all, stay hydrated in the warm water, but also just kind of, you know, why not celebrate life a little bit? You're here, right? You lose track of time here. Um, I once um, spoke to a lady who thought it was four o'clock. It was actually close to six o'clock when she came up out of the water. So people are staying long, long time. And the beauty of this is that kind of the, the losing track of time because you're so relaxed, which we kind of, we like. So standing here, with nothing, 50 months later, being able to welcome guests, it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, blood, sweat, and tears in a relaxed environment. You know, it was <laughs> such a surrealistic project to be part of. Um, and then the first time we got to get in and kind of experience for ourselves, uh, it is one of those, you know, you just kind of, you have to see it, and it's difficult to describe. We're all about how people feel and if we end our day and everybody goes here relaxed you know with lots of great memories uh, it's a good day for us it's a very good day for us for Confect in Reykjavik I'm Paige Reynolds our very own Paige Reynolds there for the latest edition of our sister podcast Confect Corner You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. Next up, we head stateside for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. For the latest episode, we try an easy vegetarian Greek recipe from the author of a new book, Lemon, Love and Olive Oil. My name is Mina Stone. I am the chef and the owner of Mina's, a restaurant at MoMA PS1 in Queens. This is a recipe for oven chickpeas, revithias do furno in Greek, from my new cookbook, Lemon, Love and Olive Oil. 
This recipe is really special to me because it is the one we make in our house all the time. It is my family's comfort food and I learned how to make it on the island of Paros in Greece where they would have a chickpea festival and they would make this dish for the entire village and tourists and people that live there. So it would be anywhere from like two to 400 people eating this most delicious chickpea recipe. It's basically a slower cooking process and it allows the oven to do all the work. You cook them in there for four hours and it gives the chickpeas all this time to absorb the onions, the garlic, the flavor of the olive oil, and it comes out of the oven. You finish it with lemon juice and more olive oil and the chickpeas are very, very soft and it's amazing. I will serve this dish when it comes out of the oven and I serve it with some olives, cheese, and bread. So I'm gonna walk you guys through the recipe. It serves eight to 10 people. You take a pound of dried chickpeas and you soak them in lots of cold water overnight. You drain them, I rinse them a bunch of times so that they're nice and clean and I sort of rub them as I'm doing it. You slice two medium onions into quarters. You put the chickpeas in a ceramic casserole dish or something similar. You can also use a Pyrex and cover it with tin foil, but any oven safe cooking vessel with a lid. And you can improvise if you don't have a lid. So we put the soaked chickpeas in the cooking vessel. We put the onions sliced into quarters. We put six to eight whole garlic cloves and you don't have to peel them. You just put them in there so that they absorb the flavor four bay leaves, a good drizzle of extra virgin olive oil, salt, and pepper. And I forgot to mention that you need to cover the chickpeas with water by two to three inches. Put the lid on, put it in the oven, and four hours later, take the chickpeas out. They should have like a golden caramel crust on the top. There should be juice on the bottom and you taste it for seasoning, add a little more salt, whatever you think it might need, and finish it with olive oil and the juice of two lemons, and serve. The chef and author Mina Stone there for this week's edition of Food Neighborhoods. From Queens, we hop across the Hudson River to New Jersey for our next highlight. As it's there that a new design magazine is shining a spotlight on the complex and fascinating history of the Garden State and the forces that have shaped it. The publication is called Dense, and Monaco's Henry Rees Sheridan recently spoke with its co-founders. I'm Lynn Ames. I am a co-founder and editor of Dense magazine. I'm originally from Indiana, but I now live in New Jersey. I've been here for eight years. And so I think by these eight years, I I have come to be excited about starting this magazine about New Jersey. I don't know if I have enough street cred yet to... <laughs> I've heard your accent here and there. Exactly. Um, but yes, that's a that's a little about me. And I'm Petya Morozov, and I'm co-founder of Dense Magazine. And uh, I was born in New Jersey. I am what they call a Jersey girl. And uh, my background is in design. Let's talk about the, the, the premise of Dense, because it's unusual uh, for a design magazine. It's pegged to New Jersey, right, as a, as a state. So it's kind of a design magazine 
uh, whose, whose fundamental premise uh, a kind of place. Why New Jersey? Uh, an obvious question. And also, maybe you can explain some of the avenues that uh, having a geographically uh, themed design magazine opens up versus more conventional kind of design lenses. Well, you can't answer that question unless you also try to get at why we called the magazine dense, because they are so intertwined. New Jersey is obviously a physical and geographic state of the U.S., but it is also, in our minds, a conceptual place where radical experiments um, have happened and also are still happening um, in ways that um, don't necessarily fall into the category of design, design projects, if you will, but um, definitely have had, when you scale out and see what social or environmental or cultural impacts these uh, decisions have had, continue to ripple. And so for us, like any place where you want to push sort of a next generation of anything, the next gen of what we mean by design or design publishing, uh, what better place than to find the most experimental environment to do that in? And it just so happened to be in our backyard. And it took perhaps a pandemic and um, Black Lives Matter and um, as well as a host of other sort of uh, historical conditions that go way back in New Jersey's past for us to sort of see how it's bubbled up to today. And um, so we wanted to really seize this moment and um, see what the next five years hold for such an experimental space. Um, and to kind of like really um, kind of pull the rug out from what people think they know about a place like New Jersey to uncover some really rich terrain for many more people other than, you know, designers. We want to be relevant to um, people not only within the design field, but also people who may not call themselves designers, but who are in every way possible designing future scenarios for equity, for environmental resilience, for like future speculative places that um, people might find themselves um, who don't typically call themselves designers. And so that's kind of the long answer. The, the short answer is that <laughs> when you are the densest uh, state in the U.S., dense with many uh, sort of statistics, <laughs> we are the densely, most densely populated state in the U.S. Um, we also have the most super fun sites of any state. Uh, there are also some mortality rates uh, that seem to be also high in our state um, for the African-American community. You know, there's a lot there that um, starts to become inseparable. And so design tends to like to put things in silos. And we're looking at that complexity and saying, well, okay, how do we bring people into it, not in a way to, to reduce it to anything, but to hold on to that complexity. Within the kind of uh, overarching theme of New Jersey, uh, you've got this structure where each issue looks at a different component of, of, of the state or is, is themed 
based on a different component of the state. And the first issue that you've come out with is, is, is themed around the, the New Jersey Turnpike, which is this kind of monumental highway that connects New York and New Jersey. Have I got that right? Yeah, in Philadelphia. And in a way, kind of over time, it's connected a lot of the East Coast, this whole megalopolis. <laughs> but yes, with each issue, we're really looking at this point in time that's kind of this portal. So with with the turnpike, while it is so much about the turnpike, it's also looking at what we mean by the inception or the, the you know, we're, we're thinking of it as the opening day and beyond. Um, and so it's not just looking at 1951, which is when the first stretch of the turnpike opened. And each issue is like this, where we, we have picked, you know, a, a date, so to speak, in time related to, in this case, the turnpike. Um, but we are very interested in the conditions that, um, yeah, have bubbled up in time and in the, how that shapes the way we think of its inception. Um, there's a lot of utopian energy <laughs> around around the turnpikes and opening. And from a pop culture standpoint, I mean, it was the first in New Jersey, uh, the first modern toll road in New Jersey, and only the third in the nation. And the the promotional films, the brochures, like there really was such a marketing that played into, I feel like, or that made the turnpike kind of poised to become this sort of pop culture icon. <laughs> um, and so our stories that our contributors brought to the table are really looking at, yeah, kind of getting into and excavating not only the utopian, but actually more, like, like even to today, like how it has shaped that. Monaco's Henry Rees Sheridan speaking to the co-founders of Dance Magazine for this week's edition of Monocle on Design. We're nearing the end of the show, but there is time for one more highlight. And this one comes from the latest episode of The Entrepreneurs. Though making your staff wear a fussy outfit might seem great at the time, the overall impression of a job well done is far more important. So, when you're sizing up a fancy epaulette or wondering about suits and skirts, the golden rule of uniforms abides. Would you wear it, boss? Our senior correspondent, Robert Bound, has this lesson from the Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs. Everyone's favourite scene in Catch Me If You Can, Steven Spielberg's zippy ride through the life and crimes of the 1970s con man Frank Abagnale Jr. It's when our man, played with a twinkle by Leonardo DiCaprio, fakes his pilot licence and, as Captain Abagnale, escorts a 747's worth of Pan Am air stewardesses on a promotional tour of Europe. Sinatra belts out Come Fly With Me as Leo becomes the grinning filling in a toothsome baby blue sandwich. Sure, the chutzpah's to be saluted, but it's those uniforms from the pencil skirts to the pillbox hats that swung it. How come? Well, uniforms are designed to send a signal, but the supposed sexiness of Pan Ams is a projection from a more permissive era. In fact, the structured jackets and knee-length skirts advertise a certain sobriety, smartness and service. Perhaps it's the very idea of restraint that's stirring some sweet mischief beneath the surface. A uniform should signal the attributes of the brand and the expertise of its staff. The tough brown workwear of the UPS delivery driver broadcasts an unfussy ability to get the parcel there on time. At its best, the smart utilitarianism of most traditional police uniforms signals a civic rather than a martial strength. 
The waiter and his salt and pepper get-up practically tell the diner what's for dinner, that they're in a brasserie, appetite whetted for the inevitable steak frite. Meanwhile, the well-drilled forecourt staff at South Korean gas stations are a joy to behold, a blur of washing, buffing, oil, water and tyre-checking faultlessness, all carried out by smiling young dudes in pressed and pristined, logoed overalls. And you thought K-pop videos had sharp choreography. The uniform, again, is a powerful brand shorthand. Uniforms, like much Western workwear, are becoming less formal, but no less expressive. The humble apron, for example, has become a potent tool in communicating a complex mixture of honest toil, artisanal endeavour and affable approachability. Vital, too, is the fact that shoppers don't wear aprons. When did you last ask a fellow browser to fetch me those boots in a ten, please, only to be met with an insulted glare? The apron, like the cape of which it's almost an inversion, is the superhero costume du jour. Of course, the aspirant entrepreneur, not unfamiliar with feelings of schadenfreude, will also want to hear a little bit from the annals of when uniforms go wrong. Remember the dearly departed super-buff shirtless greeters of Abercrombie and Fitch? Just a little bit naff, perhaps. And what of those big corporations in insurance, say, or banking, who went the full Phil Collins and decided that not just no jacket but no suit either were required? The era of the dreaded dress-down Friday was upon us, ruled by the bunchy-pleated chino and polo shirt combo that lent every meeting the air of a golf club AGM. The horror. So when you're sizing up an epaulette or wondering about suits and skirts, the golden rule of uniforms abides. Would you wear it, boss? Monaco's senior correspondent Robert Bound there. Well, that's all we've got time on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Empey and presented by me, Carlotta Rabello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>